the sermon text this morning from the end of Matthew. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. You're using the Bible there in the back of your pew. This will be page 835. Matthew chapter 28, which is the big number there on the page. And then verse 16 is the little number. We'll begin there. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the end of this great gospel that you have preserved for us down through the years and through the last few years. Even here, you have revealed Christ to us in this gospel. Lord, you have taught us to trust you. You have taught us what it means to worship Jesus. You have taught us that he is worthy of worship. So Lord, continue to teach us this morning. Yes, it's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we, as people... We like commands. It is in our nature to like commands. Whether you are a Christian or a Hindu or a Muslim or an atheistic, secular humanist, God has designed you, he's created you to yearn for structure and order. And our devotion to commands is why sometimes when we're reading God's Word, we prefer to skim past the theology to get to what we would consider the good stuff, the instruction. If you doubt this, then just look at every seeker-friendly church, there is. Every church growth strategist knows that preaching practical sermons with more life application is what people want. We want to be told what to do. We want to be told how to act. And from a, from a positive standpoint, it's a good thing to want to please the Lord. Okay, So this is, this is not to, to poo-poo the desire to follow God's commands. It is a good thing, it is a righteous thing to want to please the Lord, to to desire to live in obedience to Him. The problem, though, is this. Sometimes, our love of commands, even God's commands, doesn't come from a desire to love the Lord. 
It comes from a desire for righteousness apart from the Lord. And and the most difficult aspect of that is that for all of us, it's hard to discern within ourselves whether or not our desire to obey God's commands is from a love for God or from self-righteous motivations. We don't make very good judges of ourselves. Just as an example, this will be familiar to many of you. Do you defend God's design for marriage because you want to honor God and see people flourish? Or do you defend God's design because you have a desire to be right? It's probably some indiscernible mixture of both, isn't it? You you really do truly love the Lord, we won't deny that, and you really do want to see people flourish. But you also have maybe a sense of relief, maybe a sense of pride, that, that your attractions follow the natural order and not a perversion of God's design. There, there's a little bit of that pharisaical spirit in us, isn't there? Lord, thank you that I'm not like that man. And the reason I bring this up is now here we are, the end of Matthew, and we are at the passage that all of your Bibles have subtitled, The Great Commission. This is Jesus' big command, isn't it? And, and because of this, because this in many ways defines the Christian life, we can sometimes think that our obedience to this command is what defines whether or not we are good Christians. And in order to just take that discussion even off the table, I want you to pay attention carefully. Listen, God's commands always follow his self-revelation of who he is. God's commands always follow his self-revelation. God desires that we know him and love him first. And then because we know him and love him, then we obey him. If we flip it, we go backwards on that. If we seek to obey God's commands before we know him, it will inevitably lead to self-righteousness. One of the most enticing and addictive sins that, that ensnares our hearts This is why one of the most important commands of the New Testament is a therefore statement, right? It's a therefore statement. Jesus grounds the command of verses 19 and 20 in the revelation of who he is, which is of first order. It is primary. So the way that Matthew communicates Jesus' great commission is not, Jesus rose from the dead, immediately told the disciples, go and spread the gospel, to all the nations, and then Jesus went away. No, rather, there, there, there are all these details that tell us what's going on. There are 11 disciples, Matthew says. They are in Galilee. They are on a mountain. They are all worshiping. Some are doubting. Jesus speaks, and he reveals who he is. Then after all of that, 
then we get the command. The knowledge of Christ is preeminent, it's first, it's primary, the command follows. Any other model is simply unbiblical. So we're going to focus more of our attention. This may be unusual for, for, because this is a familiar passage to, to any of us who have been in the church for, for any period of time. This is a very familiar passage, but we're not going to focus as much on the command as we are the knowledge of Christ, the revelation of who God is in this passage. And then what we're going to do is just let the command take its rightful place as corollary to who Christ is. It logically follows, and you'll see what I mean. So first, we're going to examine the location. Matthew says this happens in Galilee. So we're going to look at what does Galilee tell us about who Jesus is. Then we're going to look at Jesus' announcement. What do Jesus' words tell us about him? The location and the announcement. And then we will see how the command follows from those things. So first we have the location, Galilee. There in verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now this may seem insignificant, almost accidental, but if, if there's anything that we've learned from 28 chapters studying Matthew's gospel is that whenever Matthew names a place, it's not insignificant. There's a reason why he names Galilee here. And before we get to the big reasons, there are a few subordinate reasons. Galilee is where the disciples are from. Okay? So, it's their hometown. It makes practical sense that the next stage of ministry would, would begin there. Remember also, Jesus told the disciples to meet him in Galilee. And that's, that's kind of a big deal. So, so way back in chapter 6, after the Last Supper, when Jesus and the disciples were walking to the garden, he told them he'd be killed, and after he was raised up, they were supposed to meet him in Galilee. And then last week, we saw this at the beginning. The angel appears to the women who were there at the tomb. Jesus is risen, and then the angel says, tell the disciples to go to Galilee. And then Jesus meets the women. And what does he say? Tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. This meeting in Galilee is the, the, the focal point of verses 1 through 10. Yes, the women see the risen Lord. And that is tremendously important. But the message, go to Galilee, was where all of the urgency was in that passage in verses 1 through 10. There's an insistence from Jesus. Galilee must be ground zero for the kingdom's advance. Why Galilee? Well, for the same reason that Jesus' ministry began in Galilee, way back in chapter 4. Way back in chapter 4, Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, Matthew tells us, because God had promised that Galilee would be the starting point of the age of Messiah. So it was a fulfillment, Matthew told us, of, of Isaiah chapter 9. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. You don't have to flip there. I'll put it on the screen for you, or Mitch will. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, 
He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So Isaiah, in in that same chapter, he's going to go on and tell us that, that famous Christmas passage that we read during the Advent season. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall rest upon his shoulders. And it's all pointing to Messiah, and it all begins in Galilee. Isaiah tells us Galilee has always been spurned. It was held in contempt by the Lord. Solomon, if you read the history of Israel in 1 Kings, Solomon traded away from his own territory 20 cities in Galilee to King Hiram of Tyre in exchange for materials to build the temple. So it was kind of like, you know, negotiable land. It's on the table. We don't really need Galilee. And then, as you continue reading the history of Israel, Galilee was the first place in Israel that was captured by the Assyrians. All right, so the people of Galilee in the northern kingdom, they were the first to receive God's judgment. They were the first to be exiled away from the land. But God promised in Isaiah 9, in the sending of the Messiah, that Galilee would be the place where the dawn of the new creation broke through. The darkest place in the land sees the light first, Isaiah said. In Galilee, as we fast forward into Jesus' ministry, in Galilee, Jesus first announced that the kingdom would be coming. Repent, for the kingdom is near, he said, in Galilee. So it follows, as we follow the story, in Galilee, the announcement of the arrival of the kingdom begins. The kingdom is coming, starts in Galilee. The kingdom is here, starts in Galilee. There's something else interesting about Galilee. Did you notice what Isaiah called it in Isaiah 9 verse 1? He says, this place is Galilee of the nations. That's not accidental. Galilee is a, is a borderland. There's always been a mix of ethnicities there in that, that region. It makes sense then that the proclamation to the nations would begin there, doesn't it? Lastly, there's something really glaring about Galilee that is so obvious that I overlooked it at first. And here it is. Galilee isn't Jerusalem. Okay, thank you, Dr. Geography. Here's why that's important. Jerusalem, as you read the scriptures, has multiple names throughout the Bible. But one of Jerusalem's most important names is Mount Zion. Sometimes it's called the Mountain of the Lord. That's important. Because in all of the prophecies, Mount Zion was supposed to be the place where the age of Messiah or the restoration would begin. Mount Zion was the place where Messiah would rule from. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. So same book of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Isaiah talking about the latter days, talking about the the age of the Messiah that is to come. He says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, 
that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here in that passage, the house of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, Zion, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, they're all the same place. And that place is to be the place where the nations will flow to in order to hear God's commands and to sit under God's commands. Isaiah continues the same theme as you go on through his book. You get to Isaiah 56, verse 6. He says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, so foreigners, so think nations, those who come to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these, the nations, the foreigners, the nations, I will bring to my holy mountain. There it is again. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. So again, God says that in the restoration, in the age of Messiah, when he is reconciling all things to himself, he's going to bring the nations to where? To the holy mountain. The expectation was that Jerusalem and the temple would be the place, physical place, that the nations would one day come to and worship the Lord. Jerusalem was to be the place that Messiah would rule from, the place where people would learn to obey God's commands. And yet, he knew that was coming. And yet, Jesus, having accomplished all that he has needed to accomplish in Jerusalem, walks out of the grave in Jerusalem, and he just keeps going. And it's like he can't get out of there fast enough. Of all the places that he could have told his disciples to meet him, we feel like it should be one of those places from Isaiah 2 or Isaiah 56. But he chose Galilee from Isaiah 9. Not the temple, not Zion, not Jerusalem. So what's happening here? How do... Isaiah 9, and the promise that the light to the nations would begin in Galilee, and in Isaiah 2 and 56, with the promise of Zion's role, how does all that fit together? The disciples were probably wondering that. Well, it all comes together in, in Jesus. Of course, the reason Jesus goes to Galilee to begin the age of restoration, the age of Messiah, is because Jesus is the new dwelling place of God. He has already shown us that. Jesus is the new temple. The old temple has been rendered defunct. It's useless. The the curtain's been torn. The final sacrifice has been made. Jesus is the holy mountain now. He is the rock of our salvation. So Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 56 are fulfilled in Jesus. Because no longer will the nations be flocking to That 31 degrees north, 35 degrees east, the nations will be drawn to Christ himself. No longer will old Zion be the place where God's commands are taught. God's commands will be emanating from Christ and his people wherever they go. His church, Zion. When Jesus schedules this important meeting, that has all the urgency of Matthew 28, when he schedules this meeting away from Jerusalem, 
He's, he's reiterating what he's been saying all along. Jerusalem is not the center of worship anymore. Jesus is. Jerusalem is not the center of worship anymore. Jesus is. The temple made of stone is not the place of God's presence anymore. Jesus is. And taking the attention of the disciples away from Jerusalem and putting the attention on himself, Jesus can now say what he's going to say. So let's examine his announcement in verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just pause there, because this is the announcement. This is the center of our passage. What does it mean? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, on the surface, it means what it says. Right? We can take it very plainly. Jesus has all the authority in heaven and on earth and on earth. Authority is a ruling word, we know that. He has ruling authority. He is king over all of heaven. He is king over all of earth. And every creature on earth and every creature in heaven, it's all his. And because it's all his, that's reassuring, isn't it? As the disciples begin their their ministry, they're reminded this is Jesus' earth. These are Jesus' people. Jesus is king over them. He is king over us. Jesus reigns. Well, on the surface level, we can understand it very plainly. But as we get beneath the surface of what Jesus is saying here, when when we learn what Jesus is echoing, what he is fulfilling, this is a bigger deal. We read in our uh, scripture reading, from Daniel chapter 7. You probably noticed that. We've, we've read it a few times before throughout Matthew. But in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, the Son of Man, that's what Jesus calls himself. Jesus is the Son of Man. He goes before Yahweh, who is God Almighty, who is the Ancient of Days, and look what he says, or look what happens in verse 14 there of Daniel. To him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Let's just break that down real quick. He is given everlasting dominion. That means he will always rule forever and ever and ever. He's given a kingdom. And this kingdom is one that can't be destroyed. It will always be forever and ever and ever. Incidentally, as you you read the book of Daniel, you see that this kingdom that's given to Jesus, the Son of Man, is the kingdom-destroying kingdom from way back in Daniel 2, from this vision. It is God's kingdom. It is the heavenly kingdom. It is anticipated by Daniel in Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm 2, it is the kingdom whose king the earthly rulers conspire against. No earthly authority could ever stand up to this kingdom. No one can crush it. No one can snuff it out. And they've certainly tried, and we've seen that. In Matthew's gospel. Think of, think of the ways that the, the priests and the scribes, the rulers of the earth, they've conspired together to stop this kingdom. 
They, they tried to stop it by lying about the king and crucifying the king and then sealing his tomb and putting guards in front of his tomb. But none of that could stop the king. Then they tried to stop the risen king and his kingdom by spreading the lie that the disciples stole the body. That didn't work either. The fact that you and I are here on the other side of the world 2,000 years after the fact of the resurrection and we know the truth of the resurrection and we worship Jesus, that is evidence that no conspiracy was ever going to stop Christ's kingdom. Neither wars, nor rumors of wars, nor false teachings, and there have been many of those, nor corruptions in the church, there's been much of that, near, not, not worldly philosophies, there's no power, there's no idea, there's no created being that can stop the kingdom of heaven. It is, as Daniel said, and as Jesus is echoing here, it is the kingdom which shall not pass away. So Daniel, saying this is the eternal kingdom, and this is the eternal king, says next that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That kind of makes sense of Jesus' command. I'm the Daniel 7 king, go to the nations and tell everybody. Jesus is the king of the eternal heavenly kingdom, therefore go bring all the peoples, nations, and languages under his rule. We'll get to that in a minute because that's the command. Before we get there, there's a little more fulfillment I want us to see in verse 18 of our passage. Jesus announcing, or his announcement that he is the Son of Man from Daniel 7, that's not the only declaration that he's making here. He's also echoing 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Now, we haven't looked at 2 Chronicles throughout Matthew's gospel or 1 Chronicles. But Matthew has written his gospel sort of as a reflection on the history of Israel, and it's all fulfilled in Christ. So that's, that's kind of been his, his pattern Chronicles begins with a genealogy. Matthew begins with a very, very similar genealogy. Chronicles ends, so 1 Chronicles 1, genealogy. 2 Chronicles 36, the very end, Chronicles ends with God fulfilling his promises by giving authority to an anointed ruler, and that ruler commands the rebuilding of the temple. We'll see that in a moment. Matthew ends almost identically. God fulfills his promises in Christ by giving authority to the Christ, and that ruler commands what we'll see is kind of a building of a new temple. And as we look at the end of Chronicles, we'll put it up on the screen in a moment, or if you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. But as we look at the end of 2 Chronicles, just for some context so you know what's going on here, as we get there, God's people have been in exile. They've been set free from exile, though. They're, they're free to return home to Israel. It's not their land anymore. It's uh, Persia's land. But you'll remember from earlier that that wasn't really the true turn, return from exile, was it? That was only a physical return. The true spiritual return from exile comes with Christ and the cross. cross we talked about that. Even so, here we are at the end of Chronicles. King Cyrus is the, the ruler of the largest empire in the known world, and he tells the Hebrew people who are returning to their land, gives them the command. He says to rebuild God's temple when they get there. 
I'm sending you home. Here's some money. Here's some materials. Go build the temple. And here's the passage. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 and 23. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So you see that fulfillment language. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Now stop right there. Look again at what he says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Compare that to what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Cyrus is saying, God in heaven gave me the earth. And the implication is that God still rules over heaven, but God designates rulers to have dominion over the earth. Cyrus just happens to be the most gifted of those rulers. He's he's the, the most powerful of the earthly rulers. God has given him the most territory. Jesus says... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you see the difference? God gave Cyrus the kingdoms of the earth. God in heaven gave Jesus the rule of heaven and the rule of earth. Let me ask you, when you read about Cyrus, you probably read about him in your world history class a long time ago for many of you, some of you last week. When you read about Cyrus in world history books, or for that matter, when you consider Alexander the Great, or, or Julius Caesar, or Augustus, or when you, when you read about the emperors of the Chinese dynasties, or when you think about the Zulu Empire in Africa, or the British Empire, or the czars and the premiers of the Russians, when we read about these kingdoms, when we think about these kingdoms, we think of real rulers with real empires and real power, don't we? It's not even... We just accept it. But do you think that way about Jesus' announcement? Because Jesus is comparing himself to Cyrus. He's the new and greater Cyrus with a far greater kingdom. Is Jesus a real king with a real kingdom and real power to you? Do you think of him that way? That's what he's saying. He is a real king, like Cyrus, but greater. He's a divine king with real authority, and his kingdom is like the Persian kingdom, which was huge, but his is even greater, and it's more powerful. It's a forever kingdom that cannot be shaken. When we consider all that King Cyrus of the Persian Empire had been given to rule over, by God, God has given Jesus all of that and more, plus all of heaven which is, we don't really even understand what that means. God has put all things in subjection to Jesus. All things. Do you believe that? Because we cannot even begin to talk about Jesus' command. His kingship has got to be substantive before we can begin to think about the command. Jesus has to be real. His rulership, his his kingship has to be real to you. 
You have to know why Jesus died to understand the gospel. You have to know that he's been raised to understand the gospel, right? You must also believe that all the authority has been given to him. That's non-negotiable. You must also believe all authority has been given to him, that God has put all things in subjection to Jesus, who is the Christ, because this is the point of the gospel. Jesus cannot be just an idea to you. He cannot just be a philosophy to you. He can't be a, a, a cute family story to teach us how to share. He can't be a myth meant to make us feel good about ourselves. He can't be a civic legend that reminds us to love our neighbor so that we can all get along for the sake of the country. If Jesus is anything less than the Christ, the preeminent one who sits and reigns from God's right hand, if he's anything less than that, then there's no point in listening to any of his commands. We have zero basis to obey verse 19 if verse 18 is make-believe. I hope you see that. I hope you see that, that God is revealing to us who Jesus is here. He is the fulfillment of the Daniel 7, Son of Man, whom all authority is given to. He is worthy of our admiration. He is worthy of our worship. And with that basis established, now we can move on to the therefore statement. Verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore. Why? Because Jesus is king of all creation. So, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, let's view this command now through the foundations that we've just established. First foundation, Daniel chapter 7. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now look at that in the command. Jesus is announcing he's the son of man from Daniel 7. He's been given all rule, all authority, all dominion. Therefore, the nations should serve him. The nations should be made subject to him. So how do we understand the Great Commission then? Well, the 11 disciples are to go out to the nations and announce Jesus is the Messiah. And so, so make disciples. They're supposed to take world's citizens, people of the world, turn them into heaven's citizens, the kingdom of heaven's citizens. Well, what does that look like? Baptize them. Why baptism? Because baptism is the, is the public sign that through union with Christ and his death, a person has a new citizenship. Right? They're, they're no longer, they don't belong to the world anymore. They belong to Christ's kingdom now. That's why disciples are baptized in the one name, that, that singular name, the one name of the one true God, Father, Son, Spirit. It's a public testimony. Someone being baptized is proclaiming, I'm not my own anymore. I don't belong to the world anymore. I belong to the Lord and his kingdom. And then the second part of that disciple making involves teaching. Look at the way that Jesus puts it. Teaching them to obey my commands. 
So when when we're teaching those who have been baptized, we're teaching kingdom citizens to obey the commands of the king. Teaching them how to live in Christ's kingdom, how to honor the king. So this disciple-making command here, from the Daniel 7 perspective, it's a political command, isn't it? This is all, it's political. And I mean that in the plain sense of the word. Jesus is the rightful political ruler of all things. He's died for the sins of his people in obedience to the Lord. He's been raised and exalted as Messiah, king over all. So disciple-making is proclaiming the gospel, announcing Jesus' rule over all. God is putting Christ's enemies under his feet. We see that, 1 Corinthians 15. God is putting Christ's enemies under his feet. One day, when that is finished, we will be able to see Jesus' reign more clearly. It's kind of hard to see now, isn't it? In the meantime, though, our assignment with the eyes of faith to see Christ seated on his throne and proclaim it. He is king. And we, we do that through how we live and what we say. If we're living as if Christ isn't king and they were proclaiming that he is king, we're a walking contradiction, aren't we? We live in obedience to him, preach that he is king, and act like he is king. To understand the other side of the Great Commission... We pick up where we left off in 2 Chronicles. So, I said stop right there, remember that? We're we're not done. Cyrus has just told us God has given him authority over all the kingdoms of the world. And then Cyrus says this, back in 2 Chronicles 36, And he, God, has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people... May the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Let me paraphrase that for you. God has given me, I'm speaking, not me, but Cyrus, pretending I'm Cyrus. God has given me all earthly authority and told me to build his temple in Jerusalem. So now I'm sending you, Israel, go up to Jerusalem and build the temple. God be with you. Now now look at Jesus' commissioning of his disciples the new Israel. I I have been given all authority in heaven on earth. Go. Very similar, isn't it? You have the authority. You have the go. I've been given all authority in heaven on earth. Go, make disciples of all nations, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The pattern is striking, isn't it? In both of these passages, you have the announcement of authority, the command to go, and then the declaration of God's presence. Cyrus says, I've been given authority. Go to Jerusalem, build the temple. May God be with you. Jesus says, I've been given a greater authority. Go out to the nations, not Jerusalem. Make disciples, and I am with you. See the difference? Cyrus can only communicate what God told him. Jesus is God. Cyrus says, may God be with you. Jesus says, I am with you. Cyrus' mission to Israel is to build a house for God. And a house for God that literally means it's a dwelling place 
for God so that God's people can, can go there and worship him there. Jesus is the house of God, the dwelling place of God, and the center of worship. So his command follows that reality. When Jesus sends the disciples to the nations to make disciples, he's commissioning them to gather in his people from among the nations to worship him. Both of these are focused on worship, aren't they? Cyrus, build a temple so that you can go worship God. Jesus, I am the temple. Take me to the nations so people can meet God. And wherever those people are gathered together, you remember what he taught us earlier in Matthew? He is there among them. So, so the great commission when viewed through Second Chronicles and what's being fulfilled here isn't so much political as it was in Daniel. It is spiritual, isn't it? Cyrus commissioned Israel to build the temple, the dwelling place of God. Jesus is commissioning the new Israel to take the temple, the presence of God, Jesus himself, and go to the nations. May God's dwelling place fill the entire earth. Not be stuck in one place. So then what does baptizing mean here? Baptizing people into Christ means that they are unified with Christ. They become a part of the body of Christ. Teaching them means they begin to think like Christ and act like Christ. God's presence then spreads through His Spirit, through His people. This brings us to the end. Jesus could accomplish, could have accomplished, still could, all of this by force, couldn't he? He, Jesus could have just declared that all the nations would now serve him, and it would have happened. That is the power, that is the authority that Christ has. But Jesus has chosen in God's all-wise plan of redemption, Jesus has chosen to spread his rule and his presence through his disciples. Think about that. He is announcing that he is the preeminent one from, all, from eternity past all the way to now into eternity future. And he's going to have that be announced through these guys. And look at them. They're not even 12 anymore. There are 11 now. And that just, the way that Matthew says that, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, it just feels incomplete, doesn't it? There's a sense of, and? And what else? It's just 11. And not only is their number incomplete, but so is their faith. Look at verse 17. When Jesus came to them, they worshipped him. Look what Matthew says. Some of them doubted. Matthew doesn't say which of them doubted or how many of the 11 doubted. He only says all of them worshipped, some of them doubted. What Matthew is communicating for us here is this juxtaposition. Jesus, King, ruler over all, and then these guys. 
which is us, isn't it? Do you feel inadequate? For, the, for, the, for this calling to announce to all the world that Jesus is king of the universe, do you feel inadequate? Does that cause you to hesitate? Do you doubt? So did some of the disciples. And, and, and friends, they are seeing Jesus. They're seeing the risen Lord, and they doubt it. They know it's him, and yet they don't quite trust their senses. They doubt. How much more are our doubts and our hesitations? And yet, with this imperfect bunch, this incomplete number, 11, Jesus comes to them, he speaks to them, he reveals his eternal authority through his words, and then he commands them, go. And when Jesus does this, he doesn't portion out the ones who weren't doubting and then, and then speak to them and, and then say to the rest of them, when you're all ready, I've got, when you catch up, I'll, I have a message for you. No, he announces the news of his reign over all to them all, even the doubting ones. And then he commands them all, go. You know Why? Because this commission, this great commission, does not depend on the greatness of the disciples. It depends on the truth of the announcement. The great commission is not great because the disciples are great. That is obvious. The great commission is great because Jesus is great. We aren't commanded to go and announce the reign of Christ and, and, and the presence of Christ because we are confident in ourselves. We are to go and announce Christ's rule and presence because it's true. See that? We, we, we are not making disciples for Christ. Christ is making disciples through us. That is an important distinction. Our role in our imperfections, in our hesitations, in our incomplete elevenness is to remember that we don't belong to ourselves. We're not our own. We've been purchased by Christ and now the Spirit through us is glorifying Christ. When we live in his kingdom, when we obey his commands, when we proclaim his rule over all things, the Spirit is glorifying Christ through us. And who is Christ? Because that's the point of this whole gospel of Matthew. Christ is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and earth. He's the divine king of the everlasting kingdom. The kingdom that nothing, no one can stand against. It is an honor. It is a privilege to be chosen by him to proclaim his rule. And it is an act of worship to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to be used by God for his glory. 
that's what we're doing, we proclaim his kingship. Because he is king, and he does reign. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Christ, we praise you. Lord, many of us doubt. We hesitate. We look around us and we see 